You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. And love is not the easy thing. The only baggage that you can bring. Love is not the easy thing. The only baggage you can bring is all that you can't leave behind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of the third cup of coffee. Glad to be with you this morning. My name is Randy Bolander. As we uh, kick it off with a little bit of U2 this morning, I love that album. That album is 20 years old. Can you believe that? 20 years old. And uh, it was so good. It was so, it wasn't just optimistic. It was full of faith. The whole album was beautiful day, peace on earth, grace. And what made it so great was until this album came out, we did not know if we would ever get another good U2 album again. Because in the late, was it late uh, 80s, we saw Joshua Tree, Rattle and Hum, and then it was like 10 years and three albums of just uh, the trilogy of shame. Octung Babies, Arupa, Pop, they were terrible. I'm, I'm sorry if you liked them, but they were just bad albums. This one, All That You Can't Leave Behind, so good, and 20 years old this year. Some of you are right on the edge of yelling, okay, boomer, nobody cares, and... To be fair, that might be true, but I have nothing but love for this album, All That You Cannot Leave Behind. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. I am Randy Bolander, and every week I take a passage of scripture, mull it over my head a little bit, and share what I am thinking about at some point. I just put it in my brain, let it tumble around. I read it in the carpool line when I'm getting my kids, and I read it late at night, and I jot down a few ideas, and then we sit down over a third cup of coffee on Wednesdays, or whenever you're listening to this. Because that third cup is where the magic happens. That's where we get the most revelation. I am convinced that when the disciples said, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened up the scriptures? It coincided with a third cup of coffee. Now, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure about that. But it just feels like that was what was going on. They were having that third cup of coffee. So pour the coffee and open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. And let me just say, as a storyteller and a writer... I have problems with Jonah 4. It's, it's unnecessary if you are trying to paint a tidy picture. It's, you don't need it. The first three chapters have this fantastic arc of a storyline to them. John, or I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 1, he's called to Nineveh, then he goes the other way to Tarshish. Jonah chapter 2, he gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, where in the belly of the fish he prays. Do you know? Most of what he prays is directly from the Psalms, which is probably a good lesson. Know your Bible before you get thrown overboard, because it gives you some material to work from. And uh, the Psalms are not always the same as therapy, but if you have to pick one, I think the Psalms are free, and they are always right. And so he prays the Psalms from the belly of the fish, and he repents. Of course, he is... uh, is barfed out of the fish. In Jonah chapter 3, he preaches to Nineveh, and they repent, both the common folk and the king of the city. has this tremendous uh, effect on the entire culture of Nineveh just in his preaching. And Jonah would be a much tidier story if it ended there. As a writer and a storyteller, like that's the money spot. That's where it ends well. But God presses in to the rest of the story, and he exposes the heart of the prophet Jonah that fails even as his ministry is a huge success. It's almost as if God is as concerned with Jonah's heart condition as he is Nineveh's salvation. And of course he is. Of course he is. Let this chapter, 
Jonah 4, let it illustrate something for you. When you see success in other people's lives, you have no idea what is going on behind the scenes. In most cases, people are humble servants and they want to be able to minister and seeing results is not necessarily an endorsement on them. But in some cases, people see great results and they are a train wreck behind the scenes. I've got a good friend, uh, author and speaker, Joel Richardson. He tells a story of he was saved in a tent revival. I mean, old school tent revival, big tent, sawdust on the floor, altar call. And he came to faith in that and he has lived now for decades has lived his life for Jesus. Later found out that the evangelist who won him to the Lord was a complete charlatan, like bordering on cult guy. Now, is Joel genuinely saved? Yes, absolutely. He's been in my home, loves Jesus. Good results come out of dubious circumstances and even broken people. God is powerful enough to use broken people to do much, much good. But the people that he uses, like this guy who led Joel to the Lord, or like Jonah, can remain broken in the process. So Jonah succeeds publicly, and then he fails privately. We'll see this in Jonah 4. Now, failure is not the worst thing in the world. But if you're going to see both success and failure, you really want to see the failure at the front end of the story and not the back end. I'm a big believer in failure that leads to success. I can cheer for that all day long. Uh, Most people who were huge successes failed early on. You know, the story goes that Thomas Edison used thousands of different things as filaments and light bulbs to find the one thing that would shed light without burning out in a moment. At one point, he says, I have not failed. I've found 10,000 ways that will not work. So Edison was a success at failure, and it led him to be a success like few men have ever achieved. It came hard, but it was worth it. And every one of us studying Jonah together, would admit that Edison affected the way we live our lives this day. Even if he failed 10,000 times, he was a success at failure, and eventually he affected all of us. Jonah was a failure at success. He set out to do something, he accomplished it, and at the time when most people take a victory lap, he then really failed having succeeded. We've all seen this. We've all seen leaders that seem to have some sort of self-destruct gene. It's not unusual to see people accomplish big things and then totally undermine themselves with a careless word or a careless deed or attitude. If we were all sitting around a table, we could probably name 10 people who we've seen do that over the years. Because if you think failure is hard on a person, you should check out what success does to the human heart. Given the frailty and tenderness of people, Success is not that easy. Jonah 4 starts at the pinnacle of Jonah's success. And at the beginning of his failure, his best and worst day. In the verse before, at the end of Jonah 3, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here Jonah has preached to the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh repents from all the way down from the blue-collar workers up to the king of the city. And he is at the pinnacle of his effectiveness in ministry. And immediately, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 starts, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Like, if you were to read this quickly, you'd think you missed something. 
because everything's going great. Exactly what he had preached about, the idea that, that God was, was going to judge them, had an effect on them. And then they repented. And in the next verse, it says it displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. What's the it? It was the repentance of Nineveh and the grace of God on their lives. He's not just a little irked. He is exceedingly angry. The original Hebrew language says it caused him to burn. Scholars tell us that Jonah became angry probably even before the deadline of 40 days was complete. He didn't even wait to see what was going to happen. It just appeared that God was having grace on these people before the deadline, and it caused him to burn in anger because his worst fear was that Nineveh would repent and God would spare them. And now that was coming to pass. What kind of person gets angry because the people they were preaching to repented? Let's look a little bit more into verse 2 and see what we can learn about Jonah. First thing we learn in the second verse is that his, the, his theology was pretty good. It was accurate. If you look at Jonah 4.2, we're going to look at it backwards a little bit towards the end of the verse. It says, For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah's theology was good. He knew God was merciful. He knew he was slow to anger. He had that part of God's character down pat. Jonah was accurate in his theology, but he failed in love. It says at the very beginning of that verse, and he prayed to the Lord God and said, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste. To flee to Tarshish. He says, this is why I ran. I understood your character. And because I knew your character and I knew that you would be benevolent towards people, I went the other direction. He said, I was right in my theology, but I was weak in love. Why do so many leaders appear to have this self-destruct gene that they understand God's character, but they're weak in love and they fail when it comes to loving people? And the success that they have in ministry actually exposes their hearts for what they are. You know, ministry is so deeply connected to your being that when it doesn't go the way you want it to go, everything that is inside you comes out. This is true of vocational ministry as well as volunteers who serve at the local church. The only thing more revealing in ministry than failure is success. And in his success, what's inside of Jonah comes out. He had a hatred for the people of Nineveh that made it more acceptable that they go to hell than it would be for God to have grace on them. What did he have against the Ninevites? I mean, when you really think about it, that he would say, knowing that you're going to have grace on them, I would rather go to Tarshish. I'd rather go the other way than to see you have grace on them. Jonah's reason for running was that he just did not like the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were an idolatrous, proud, ruthless nation that had their hearts set on conquering the world. They'd been a threat to Israel forever. And Jonah was so passionate about his hatred for them that he said, I would rather see them burn in hell than to hear the message of the Lord. And even when I preach it to them and they respond, and I know God's character, I'm mad about that. God is wanting to use us. 
that will do something on the earth that will bring about the salvation of men, women, boys, and girls that we may not even be excited about seeing come to the kingdom. I mean people who are so different and even maybe so aggressive towards us that we have mixed feelings about them coming to the Lord. Jonathan Swift was a British writer, late 1600s, early 1700s, and he was big into satire. And I I have to say that at the front end because the quote sounds terrible, but it, it was satire. He wrote, We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't heaven heaven crammed. Now, we imagine eternity with people like us. We never imagine that those we might serve eternity with would be like anybody else. We believe the gospel can save them. We just think it probably won't, and we kind of hope it won't. So here in Jonah 4, verse 2, he unloads on the Lord, and he is talking to God complaining about God. Can you imagine talking to God, complaining about God? Beginning of 4, verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Is this not what I said? He is angry that God is gracious and compassionate. He's angry that the same kind of mercy that saved him is also available to others. He's so ticked that in complaining to God about God, he quotes God. He actually quotes Exodus 34, 6. There's a passage there where God is relaying the Ten Commandments to Moses. And God proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That is exactly what Jonah says about God. And he continues, having prayed, God, you're out there running around, acting like God, even like you said you would. He quotes him. Now, if you have a toddler, you know that the thing that follows the tantrum is the ultimatum, right? Right? When they get that angry with you, they announce, I'm going to run away. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And this is exactly what Jonah does. Chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He shakes his fist at God. He quotes God. He complains to God about God and then says, things are so bad, I think I just want to die. There is, in turning the hearts of people, something known as the poignant question. The perfect question for the moment that reveals what's really going on. Go back to uh, 2008. President Obama was elected under this banner of hope and change, and he promised unprecedented levels of transparency and everything would be different in an Obama White House. Now, like every president before him and everyone that will follow, he realized when he got into the White House, it's easy to declare that on the campaign trail, but actually being, more pre- being president is, is more complicated. His administration faltered in those early years with the very things that he promised, the struggle for transparency and delivering on the hope and the change that people voted for him to achieve. Fast forward to February of 2010. He's about a year into his term now, and it is not going well. He's not been as transparent as he promised. He's not been able to stoke those fires of hope and change that he promised that he would, particularly in the early part of his presidency. It was just tough slogging. In that season, when people are getting a little bit frustrated with him, Sarah Palin is speaking to a group of conservatives. And, you know, 
people have strong opinions about her, like her or dislike her. When she is on the speaking circuit, she is either on or she's not. But when she is on, she is really good. And in that moment of great frustration, she said something that overshadowed every other phrase from this hour-long speech. She said, I'd like to talk to some of President Obama's supporters and ask them, how's that hopey, changey thing working for you? It was the money line of a 50-minute speech. A well-asked question can chart the course for how people think. So here, God asks a question of Jonah, and it is the money line of chapter 4. And the Lord said in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? How's that cranky, grumpy pants response working for you, Jonah? Now here's the funny thing about immaturity. It never recognizes itself. A toddler never says, you know, I'm I'm acting a little childish here. An immature Christian rarely says, yeah, I think I'm being immature. No, childishness and immaturity usually doubles down on childishness and immaturity when it's first confronted. And that's exactly what Jonah does. In verse 5 of chapter 4, reading on through 6, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he could see what would happen of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah goes out to the edge of the city, builds a little lean-to, sits down, says, I'm going to see what's going to happen here. And God provides shade for him. Jonah continues, so he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorch east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He asks him again, are are you serious? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah replies to him, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, reading this and listening to it later, Jonah seems a little bit unbelievable. He actually doubles down on his statement to God that he is justified in his anger. He doesn't pick up on the cue when God asks you a question the second time. It's not because he did not hear your answer. It's because you got the question wrong. Anger has a way to blind people to things that are obvious to everybody else. It's why our worst decisions are made when we're angry. If the Lord is pressing you into something and you are so consumed with your anger about the situation, you react in what we call a blind rage, even towards God himself. Nobody thinks straight when they're mad. Verse 10 goes on and says, that the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor or you did not make it grow, for which came into being in a night and perished 
in a night. He said, Jonah, you are completely overattached to things that do not matter. You've got an unhealthy attachment to things of no consequence to the point that you are now angry for something I provided and removed. Jonah, you did nothing. I did everything. And you're still mad. You're acting like you're three years old, which is fine when you're three years old, but you're not. Let me challenge some of you for what you are angry about. How are you acting that out? I'm not saying you don't have reason to be angry. Now, Jonah really didn't, but maybe you do. But how are you acting it out? And when God challenges you on it, are you doubling down and explaining to him why you are right? The greatest question of your life is how you will respond to God when you find that your buttons have been pushed. Jonah, who showed great success even as a reluctant prophet, had his buttons pushed by the people of Nineveh repenting. And now he shows great failure to hear God's intention towards humanity. The story of Jonah closes by God saying, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah was so angry that he failed to see the heart of God towards other people. He prioritized law over love. He prioritized selfishness over sovereignty of God. And he prioritized his own comfort with what God was doing over the souls that God wanted to save. There are a lot of you listening that are called to great things. I'd say you're all called to great things, but they will stretch you beyond your capacity. You've got to keep the priorities of love and sovereignty and souls. Reject the legalism, the selfishness, and the comfort that will lull you to sleep to the point that you will express your anger towards God about God. Friends, we got to think long and hard about how we respond when we're angry. Because we can succeed and then fail in our success if we can't find a way to bring our heart into alignment with what God is doing around us. I can't control my circumstances. I can't. I can't control what God is up to. So this is my portion. To bring stillness to my own heart. To exhibit a genuine willingness to hear what God is saying, even when everything in me is angry. Maybe that's the lesson of Jonah. Maybe that's why the fourth chapter is necessary. Maybe that's where we find ourselves living. Hope you have a great week. We'll be back next week for another third cup of coffee. 